So anyway, John, we're, we are branching out with the show, mm -hmm. and as I mentioned, I'm going to do a show with my with my wife's pain doctor. who's written a wonderful book about how you deal with that and how people cope. And then I'm, I'm going to get one with my golf instructor and my trainer, and they've been incredibly interesting collaborators on, mm -hmm. on getting good at stuff like that. And I think that will be interesting for everybody. Absolutely. And now we've got you coming in. Instead of talking to the author, we're talking to... We're going to talk behind his back. We're going to talk behind his yeah. back. Except yeah, we're probably talking about the this. author. Yes. So how do you want to structure this conversation? I, I've got some ideas, but what do you want to... Um, I think we just see where the conversation takes us. That seems best. I've got lots of questions um, that I'd like to ask you, but I think they can come as part of our discussion of the book. The Walton Show, June 2nd. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics, and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. Well, today I'm back with my friend John Tamney uh, with Freedom Works and Real Clear Markets. You've seen him on the show many times. He's an extraordinary economist and writer, interesting thinker, great contrarian. But this time, unusually, we're not going to be talking about one of John's books. We're going to talk about a book that we both like a lot. John reviewed it, well, I guess, two, three years ago. And it's a book by Steve Schwarzman, who is the founder and now chairman of, of Blackstone Group, which is an incredibly successful financial services, financial investment firm. Uh, and he took it from pounding the streets of uh, Tokyo to raise money to, to being one of the largest, most successful firms in the world. Uh, he's written a book, What It Takes, Lessons in the Pursuit of Excellence. And John has asked me to say about what I think about what's in some of it, and so this is going to be a bit of a twist in that John's going to get the first, uh, the first question today. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let's, it's, it, let's start with the fact that um, when they were out raising money, uh, that, that's how I begin my review of the book. Pete Peterson at one point says, never do this to me again, as in it was a desperate process of being turned down over and over again. And I'm just curious, so the numbers you get from the book is 17 no's for every yes and raising the first fund, $880 million. What did you think at the time, or what did you think in reading about this? This was, to raise a fund today, it's a known quantity. Back then, this was re remarkably courageous, and they were getting into a field that they hadn't been in, private equity. Well, back up a bit. You know, John, or not John, but uh, Steve and Pete, Pete Peterson was a very successful CEO of Lehman Brothers. He came out of Lehman Brothers, I think, after the, came to Lehman after the, the stint of Secretary of Commerce, and before that he'd been president of Bell & Howell, and a very good executive. And Steve was a brilliant star in the M&A department at Lehman Brothers, and I think Steve was actually featured when he was 30 years old in New York Times Magazine for putting together a deal where Tropicana was acquired by Beatrice, and I don't think he was barely a partner at that point, but he had the chutzpah to go down to, to take this deal on by himself when nobody else was around, and it was a major, major success. And they'd specialized in working with big companies, financial advisory, and had gone from success to success to success. And Steve had gone to Yale, been a member of Skull and Bones, and I really never had been in a position where you're going around passing the hat asking for, in his case, a very modest billion dollars. <laughs> now, I, I was at Lehman Brothers uh, before it, uh, when it was Lehman Brothers Kuhn Loeb, which was back in the day when we were a, it was a private partnership, and I was a rung below partner. I was senior vice president, only been in the firm for two, three years, and so I didn't really know the inner workings, but they were a very big deal. And so when Lehman Brothers was sold to Shearson, uh, Steve had wanted to go out and do something on his own, uh, but their background was in the M&A business, advisory business. They had no background investing in startup companies, or not startups, but in private equity deals. And the, the discussion they had between the two of them was Pete was being a 
I think he was 20 years older than Steve. Mm. I think Steve was then 37 or 38, and Pete was probably 57, 58. And Steve said, I want to go raise this fund. And Pete says, well, let's raise a $50 million fund. We don't know. <laughs> we don't really know what we're doing. Mm. And Steve said, no, we're going to raise a billion-dollar fund. <laughs> he, mm -hmm. talked, he talked Pete in it, but they went to everybody they went to see. I didn't really... Uh, in the first place, I think there were only about two or three billion dollar funds in existence at that point. Mm -hmm. So the idea of people coming out of this with no operating experience, no private equity, buyout experience per se, was audacious. Mm -hmm. And you know, if you look at Steve's career, um, audacious would be one of the words you'd use to uh, describe it. Uh, so is it unusual to get 17 no's for one yes? Uh, I'd say that's pretty typical when you're doing a first-time fund, although I think it was that was the ratio. I think probably he got like 50 no's before yeah. he got one yes, and then the, mm -hmm. the averages got better. I guess eventually they got to uh, Japan and were able to raise $100 million from one of the insurance companies in Japan, but it, uh, it was a humbling experience for him, and being caught in the rain without... Uh, Without, uh, without a coat or a cab uh, was not something Pete Peterson was mm -hmm. used to. Mm -hmm. Just amazing what they went through. And, and I thought it was crucial what he said that people see the success. And so this book comes out in 2019 when he's one of the richest men in the world. He talks about how, I, I have in quotes here, grueling. Uh, he talks about being alone, alone at dinner thinking we're going to run out of money. We just don't have much in the bank. This is not going to last. What a scary thing he did. Uh, did you see it at the time? Did you see it from Lehman Brothers Kuhn Loeb? Was there something about him that you noticed? Uh, could you have predicted it? Yes. Why? <laughs> in a word. Well, I mean, Steve's a highly competitive, highly competitive man. I mean, if you look at his background, he grew up in Fairly, his family, I guess, owned a, a retail business in Philadelphia, and his father was a successful owner of that business. But even when Steve was 12 or 13 years old, he was telling Dad he had to expand to this new location or that new location. His father didn't want to do it. Uh, but he, uh, you know, he was president of his class in his junior year in high school. He, surprisingly, you don't think this for a, a financier in Wall Street, he was a, an amazing track star. And he ran the first leg of the 400-meter or 400-yard dash in high school and uh, evidently had one of the fastest times in, uh, in uh, Pennsylvania. And then, and also my favorite fact about Steve is when he, he got into Yale and he uh, wanted to go to Harvard. And so Harvard, though, had put him on the waiting list. And Steve wouldn't accept that as an answer, so he called up the dean of admissions at Harvard. What was this, 1964? <laughs> he didn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> he told the dean of admissions, he said, well, you're really going to want to, you, you're going to want to have me at Harvard. Why is that? He said, because I'm going to be very successful, and you'll be proud of me as one of your alumnus. Now, it turns out my wife, Sarah, when she was applying to Cornell, said the same thing, and they let her in. But they, Harvard didn't let Steve in, so he went on to Yale and had a, had a very interesting career, got into Skull and Bones, which is, which is really kind of remarkable, because Skull and Bones is the, the most prestigious, prestigious secret society, and you tend to think of people like Averill Harriman and, that, and the Harriman family as being in that, and I think the Bushes were in Skull and yeah. Bones. Steve didn't come from that background, and yet he got in. So he, he's an extremely socially skilled man. And another story about him I thought was interesting from the book. He, uh, between his uh, freshman year at Yale, where he wasn't all that happy, and his sophomore year, he didn't go look for a job as a tennis instructor. He went down to the docks in Brooklyn and got a job on a steamer, a freighter, and signed on, <laughs> signed on to work in the, uh, in the in the boiler room of a freighter. And then I guess got promoted on another trip to be uh, cook. 
So here's a kid, seven, you know, 18, 19 years old, Yale working on a, on a, on a I don't know, it was a tramp steamer, but a, but a, something of the commercial boat. But he took along some, some things to read. The collected complete works of Sigmund Freud. <laughs> <laughs> a varied read, mind. I read that. I thought, wow. And I have a picture of me in basic training at Fort Knox, where I'm reading the the Stranger by Camus. Mm -hmm. But I didn't oh, think about. Oh, I didn't think about. Well, yeah, I, I did it too. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so Steve had this ability to to figure out what he wanted to do and make a connection. So am I surprised that he? Uh, he ended up getting his fund done? Not really. Mm -hmm. Your views on the book evolved. You liked it more the more you read it. I did. Why? What, what? Well, in the first place, it, it, it sort of shows who he is. If you look at the construction of the book, in the first place, he did, it's not a warts and all, tell all, you know, I did this when I was in fourth grade kind of book. He talks about the highlights of his life, the track team, Yale, Skull and Bones. Um, I think he recruited a, uh, a popular group to sing at his high school. Do you remember the name of that? Oh, yeah. It's a, there's a picture. A picture the... of them. Um, yeah. The, Always uh, a doer. Little Anthony and the Imperials, he, he recruited, <laughs> when they were big stars, recruited them to, to sing at his high school prom or something like that. Uh, and I, I wasn't sure, I started liking it a lot, and then it kind of went into the, the normal getting up through the ranks in, in investment banking or, or getting through Yale and then the Harvard Business School. And then just, you sort of see when you when you look at this, that this man has thought through so many things. He's got 14 pages of acknowledgments in this book. Mm -hmm. He probably had 12 people working on it. He had, uh, I think, uh, took him 10 years to write it. Mm -hmm. And it really tells you a lot about what it was like to build this business, what it was like to manage a company going through the uh, financial meltdown of 2008, 2009. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. It's hard, it's hard not to... Uh, see lots in there and if I'm a young man or young woman who wants to make it uh, in business or for that many any any field I think this would be a great place to uh, start learning about what it takes mm -hmm. well so let's talk about the, the by the way I'm not on commission Steve didn't you know, <laughs> I haven't seen right. Steve in 40 yeah. years or mm -hmm. 30, you know however long it's been well um, I, I threw a big uh, bouquets in my review I just I thought it was very interesting and insightful in a lot of ways and I've used it over and over again just for my own writing. Um, one of the things that most interested me, and I thought about you at the time, is that he has this admonition throughout the book. Don't lose money. That was, that was what he told the people at Blackstone. You do not lose money. Private equity, at least from an, to an outsider, is all about taking big risks on companies that aren't doing too well and operating them better on the way to an eventual exit. You would read. You read the book, and there's one deal where he admits to losing money. Where he thought, "I actually wanted to write a check to the to the people we lost lost money for." Is there such a scenario where you could never? Aren't you losing money a lot of the time? Well, not on purpose. Not on purpose, but because you're taking big risks. It just struck me that we're not hearing about a lot of bad deals. Am I incorrect? I, this is not a warts and all book. We're, we're reading mainly about the ones that worked in this mm -hmm. book. And I would guess there are probably 10, 15, 20% of the deals in the Blackstone portfolio where they might have lost some money. Mm -hmm. I think the message that I took away is you want to structure things so that you do incredible due diligence. You want to run down what, you know, I, I, I was a baby, but when I was a baby banker in a, in a commercial bank, uh, Jay Pritzker was my biggest client, and I worked very closely with him. He kind of took mm -hmm. me under his arms as a protege, and he called them the horribles. And anytime you go into a deal, you want to say, okay, here are the three things or five things that could, uh, could cause this to blow up or end up badly, and you mitigate that. You say, okay, well, here's this bad thing. Maybe there's a regulatory risk. Well, how do we... 
how do we deal with that? Or maybe we've got a key customer who, uh, if we lose, would be a big problem. How do we think about that? And how do we protect ourselves if that happens? So you try to think all that through before you go in. So don't lose money as a mindset. Mm -hmm. And it makes you much more careful than you would be if, you, if you're thinking about 10 deals and you're saying, well, look, I'm going to do, and venture capital is more like this. Mm -hmm. You go into 10 deals, you, the way that business works is you get one massive winner and it makes up for the other nine where you do lose money. Mm -hmm. So it's a different mindset. But in private equity, you're typically buying fairly established companies. Maybe they're a turnaround, maybe they're already successful and you just want to take it further. Uh, but you shouldn't you shouldn't be thinking about the possibility of a wipeout because you're betting on something that already has some um, some commercial success. <laughs> the uh, and so I, I think I would say that to I'm sure he says that to everybody who worked for him to give him the same kind of mindset he had. I mean, one of the things I liked in his rules and and he's got 25 rules here in the book. And I think my favorite, a lot of them are the sort of the standard self-help, um, is rule number 21. Worrying is an active, liberating activity. Huh. <laughs> and I saw that and I thought, absolutely. It says, if channeled appropriately, it allows you to attribute, to articulate the downside in any situation and drives you to take action to avoid it. Mm -hmm. And so I think what it, I, I, I interpreted don't lose money to say worry about the, uh, worry about all the bad stuff that happened and don't find it acceptable that you could lose things. One moment. We're watching the Bill Walton show and I'm talking with John Tamney and we're talking about Steve Schwarzman and Steve Schwarzman's life, his book and his investment philosophy and we're trying to. We're working to figure out what we like best about it, and maybe some of the things that uh, we don't like about it. John. Well, so continuing on that, I thought it was interesting, and, and so you were, as you describe, you were a baby banker. You were a senior VP while he was partner head of M and A at, at Lehman. He talks about at Blackstone about a very collegial atmosphere, as in from analysts on up, we want everyone's opinion. Uh, on the way to making a deal. We want everyone's opinion about what could go wrong. How true did that read to you? Was that your, ex do you think he grew into that? Uh, was that the way it was at Lehman? Was it a truly collegial atmosphere? Or is there a bit of showmanship there? Well, again, collegial, collegial after you get to a point where you trust everybody in the room and their judgment and their ability to deliver time after time after time. It's, you know, I used to say about private equity, many are called, but few are chosen. Because the amount of things you need to know to be successful in private equity is a lot. Mm -hmm. And I remember being in New York in the 80s and People would say, oh, I want to go into private equity. Everybody's making billions and leverage buyouts. Well, but you had to know a lot to do that. Mm -hmm. You need to understand how businesses operated, how to pick people, how to structure things, how to get it financed. Uh, uh, and most people don't have that talent. And Lehman Brothers, Kuhn Loeb, Lehman Brothers, when it was still a private partnership, was hardly what you'd call collegial. I mean, it was a very sharp, sharp elbow uh, uh, environment, but the joke about Lehman is nobody will ever stab you in the back. They'll stab you in the chest. <laughs> <laughs> but if, I loved being, you know, I would, I'd been a banker at Continental Bank in Chicago, and I had a really terrific career. I was a, a, sort of a star banker in the commercial lending division. That's where I got to know Jay Pritzker very well. And then they made me head of strategic planning when I was 30 years old, which at the time was, you know, that was a pretty big deal. Now, I'm not responsible for the plan that got Lehman or got Continental Bank into bankruptcy, but I'd, I'd left before then. Mm -hmm. But then I'd got, I didn't want to stay in a big bank, and I wanted to get out and do something more entrepreneurial. I wanted to be on Wall Street, and I'd gone to Indiana, and Wall Street was not recruiting people from Indiana. And I tried, I, I, there was a guy that ran the Goldman Sachs office in Chicago, 
and I tried. I, I'd go see him every two or three weeks, saying, you got to hire me at Goldman Sachs, Goldman Sachs, Goldman Sachs. Well, he never did. And then I got a call from Lehman Brothers, and they said, we'd like to hire you as a business development guy, and it, that was my chance to get into the street, and I said yes, but I've said yes with, with a little bit of trepidation because Lehman was, uh, was known for a very tough, tough culture, but a really interesting culture. They had all kinds of people from the CIA. They had Europeans from noble families who, could, who were great business development people. It was a very, very colorful group of people. And, and we still had Billy, uh, um, uh, Bill uh, Lehman's uh, art collection there. Mm. So we had this, these fabulous Matisse's and Monet's and that sort of thing. And so you, 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 go to, you go to work at Lehman Brothers at, at the time at 55 Water, and it was just like this really interesting culture. But you didn't do very well there unless you could deliver. Mm. And it wasn't a nurturing environment in any sense at all. You needed to get a rabbi. And they also didn't think they needed to spend a lot of time training you. I'll, I'll never forget. I had a similar experience to Steve. You get, they say, we want you to take a look at this... Uh, this bond deal that's coming up, it's a convertible, preferred, whatever. And I'd come out of commercial banking, I had no idea what they're talking about. And so they threw me this, this, the, this prospectus on, on the table, and I'm supposed to figure it out. And so I remember spending three or four really, really tough night, days and nights trying to figure out how this thing worked. And that was the culture. You had to, you had to figure it out, and then mm -hmm. make things happen, and then prove you could do it. And then Steve also talks about a culture at Lehman. I guess one of his early experiences, where you know, we back in the day we had we had pitch books. We still, I'm sure we still we still do. And you'd go visit the CEO of some major corporation. Every single word in that book had to be right. Every single number. You dot your i, cross your t, and you get it exactly right. Well. Steve, I guess, showed up at one of those pitch book meetings where he'd made a mistake, and the partner in charge just absolutely, uh, he had a very bad day. So he learned the standard of, of being perfect. Mm -hmm. And when he talks about hiring people, he talks about hiring tens, and he's talking about um, getting people who can get it exactly right. And I think the other word he uses in the book is uh, you can make mistakes well, actually, he doesn't put it that way. He says, I, the word for you to be thinking about is 100%. Mm -hmm. I want you to get 100% right. Mm -hmm. And so what do they have at Blackstone now? 20,000 applicants for every job? I'm so, yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because it, it's kind of a digression, but it's a question I've been wanting to ask you. The number that I got in there was 14 thousand applicants this was for I think 2018 around when the book was published and they hired some microscopic number relative to that and so he says it is harder to get a job at Blackstone than it is to get into Yale or Harvard I mean it's an extremely they hire tens that's it and it leads to a question I want to get back to um, the process of investment but I found myself reading that, wondering about this woke capitalism thing. So Steve Schwarzman has to get the best people. That's his deal. That's the Blackstone deal. Do you ever think that sometimes the Goldmans, the Blackstones of the world, the Black Rocks, do some of this woke stuff, not because they care a lot about it, but because for the people they want to get in modern times, for whatever reason, they care about it, and this is a way of recruiting the tens that you couldn't necessarily recruit without it. Am I not, sir? Uh, so you're saying kids you'd recruit when they're 23, 24 years old are, are big devotees of woke capitalism, and they believe in diversity, equity, and inclusion over All that money. nonsense. They believe in making money. Oh, of course they do, but they want to think well, those that two are not. Those two don't hang together very well. But invariably they do. These kids from these from these the Harvards and Stanfords that he hires from, whatever their politics, they're good at making money. And he hires these tens. Is there something to maybe they touch on some of this stuff to placate them? 
Okay, this is the Bill Walton Show. I'm here talking with John Tamney, and I'm stalling for time to figure out how to answer his question. We're trying to we we're trying to figure out whether you can be woke and, and while at the same time being successful in the private equity business and on Wall Street. I told you it's a digression. And <laughs> we are digressing, and I'm, I'm I'll come up with the an answer. <laughs> uh, you know, Steve, John, the the thing that's fascinating is how the the culture has changed. American culture has changed, and I think not for the better. I found working on Wall Street and then later on with Allied Capital in the 90s and the early 2000s up through 2010 just so energizing and stimulating because you're really pursuing excellence. You're trying to get you know the best deals done. You're trying to not lose money. Mm -hmm. uh, you got to work with amazingly smart people. I mean, uh, we didn't we you know my shop was in DC and and you know in DC we could pay a fairly good salary but you know basically New York salaries in DC so we got the mm -hmm. best and the brightest and I guess one of the things I miss about uh, that the most is the investment committee we had where we had 12 or 15 people in it that were just so smart and so many different points of view and you just learn so much I mean one of the things that Steve talks about is adding businesses to Blackstone where you learn about the world. And if you learn about this business, the hedge fund business, or maybe it's a real estate business where you get into this, that, and the other, the knowledge you get from deal after deal after deal about how the way the world really works is extraordinarily um, exciting. And you're now asking me if, if, if Blackstone is now hiring kids out of Harvard Business School, who are 25 years old, who have been through all the all the um, the new age, politically correct, woke um, approaches to business. Does that work in his model? I don't know. Mm. I don't know. It's a really it's a good question. I mean, that's really a cultural change. I don't think you can measure success in terms of your certainly your private equity success. Your investors are going to say. Well, we're glad you're focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion, but how much did you return from our mm -hmm. investment in the fund? And mm -hmm. that's the tension. Mm -hmm. And you get some people arguing that, well, that's good business. Well, it's not really very measurable business, and it's certainly no. not measurable in the um, private equity or hedge fund business. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you, uh, he, he, I thought very interestingly, the way Schwarzman put it was China is now a market economy overseen by the Communist Party. He's obviously doing a lot in China, not just from a private equity perspective, but from he's funding a university. Did any of his commentary on China change your point of view? And I, I don't ask that. Did, did, was it compelling to you? What, what did you think about that? China is a very thorny issue for people like me who've been on Wall Street, been investing, who, you know, came up in the world where once we opened China up, we were supposed to all go into China. We're going to make China prosperous. We're going to help their economy succeed. We're going to help them build their businesses. We're going to do all sorts of things with China. And in return, the expectation was China's going to become more like us, liberal mm. democracy join all the Western institutions. And that seemed to be happening up until the last five or six or seven years when G began to ascend and get more and more powerful. And so I think the China that Steve went into 20 years ago is a different China than the China we have today. Mm -hmm. And there are now a lot of people in the private equity business, Chinese private equity investors are beginning to say China's become uninvestable because it's no longer a capitalist economy with the, China, with the Communist Party in charge. The Communist Party now is taking much more of a direct involvement in, in businesses in China, and so it's changing. Mm -hmm. um, and I know he's got a massive, Steve created something called the Shoresman Scholars with one of the largest uh, I think the largest, most prestigious uh, university in China, one I, I didn't know about, but he, he's got a major investment and it's been very successful. And so it's kind of like a road, it's equivalent almost to a road scholarship mm -hmm. with the Schwarzman scholars. And 
his acknowledgments, which I think mentioned goes on for page after page. He's got a couple pages just thanking the people he did business with in China. Mm -hmm. um, and I know you're a big fan of China, and you say they love the West. And five years ago, I would have been mostly there with you. And I, five years ago, I was sort of a unilateral free trader. Let's open it up, no tariffs, let's do business back and forth. I don't think that's what we're dealing with now. I don't think it's a competitor. I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an enemy. Do you think he thinks that? Steve, if you're watching, we'd love to have you on to talk about how your, how your views about China have changed. I think everybody has to be thinking about it differently. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I've been, I've been sort of noisy about Larry Fink and, and BlackRock and what they're doing in China. And I think, you know, they're still plunging ahead in China because they see that 450 million person uh, investment market and they want all those savings dollars and they want uh, BlackRock to be managing all that. And I think he he's not hearing the music as I see it. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe they know more than, than, than we know. Maybe they've got some deeper insights into the workings of the Chinese Communist Party. Mm -hmm. I don't think so. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's one of the ones that Schwarzman acknowledges that he got wrong was BlackRock. Well, that was interesting. Wasn't yeah, it? that was. Isn't that a good story? That was. Yeah. Larry Fink, bond bond <laughs> department guy, no know, knew how to put together a complicated bond deal on the planet. Set up a shop. What they want to call it, Black Pebble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Steve Steve had black stone. They wanted to have something black in it. Mm -hmm. So they started out with black pebble. I don't think that lasted a day or two. Mm -hmm. And then they ended up with black rock, which is a better name. And I think black stone had like a 40% interest in black <laughs> rock, which today would be worth, mm -hmm. I don't know, trillion, I don't know, yeah. trillion dollars. I don't know, some huge number. But... You know, I guess Larry Fink went back to Steve and said, look, we made this deal. You invested in this. On the other hand, we're doing all the work, and we think your stake is too high. And Steve said, a deal's a deal. We're going to stick with it. Well, instead, they came apart, and he now owns 0%. So mm -hmm. that's, when he, that's when he missed. He didn't lose money. Yeah. He didn't lose money. No, no. But it was one of the two <laughs> things where he said, boy, I really blew it here. And yeah. so something he regrets. I've got to ask you mark-to-market accounting of 2008. Um, I have something underlined in here. He looks back on that, and the view inside Blackstone was that Lehman's real estate portfolio was a mess. This was before the meltdown. Uh, you sold massive amounts of real estate in 20, 2005 because you noticed something amiss. He talks about something amiss here. And so my question is, he says this, but then he says, well, mark-to-market accounting was a bad thing. I think any accounting rules are bad, but I find myself wondering, why would it have made any difference for Lehman Brothers? Lehman, by his estimation, the portfolio is mess. Does Lehman, I guess my question is, does Lehman die either way? What's your assessment of that? I think had we not had FAS 157, which was the mark-to-market, mm -hmm. we wouldn't have had the meltdown we had in 2008, 2009. Mm -hmm. I think that accounting rule was so destructive because all these companies, and you know, mine was in that group, we didn't have FAS 157, we had some SEC rules. Mm -hmm. But most of them were in the business of long-term investing, medium-term investing, holding assets for a period of time, there's an investment cycle. And if you're, if you're you and me sitting there investing our dollars and we're saying, okay, we've got a portfolio of 100 million here, but this is in real estate and we're expecting to hold this for five to 10 years and there'll be cycles and things like that. And so we end up with a, with a down cycle. We don't all of a sudden say, well, this thing's worthless. We say, well, let's write it out through the next piece of it. What Mark to Market did essentially was it says, well, let's mark this thing to the most pessimistic view about the market right now in this moment in time. And it mismarked a lot of the portfolios of all the big banks. And your favorite, you know, it was exacerbated by short selling and the use of derivatives where people were trying to drive 
these companies out. You know, if you, if you start short selling, you drive the value of the assets down. Use derivatives to to amplify that. You know, Lehman Brothers. Let's pick a big number. Maybe their assets were three billion, and maybe with the problems in the real estate market, maybe they were worth two point eight billion or something like that. I, I don't know what the actual numbers were. Maybe two point five. Mm -hmm. With mark to market, remember everything was marked based on public. I think S and P fell fifty percent. Mm -hmm. So instead of marking it down just some, they went all the way down to what you could trade things are uh, in that moment. And Mike Milken has one of those axioms, which I think is absolutely true, liquidity, ability to access to credit. We, you, you're big on that <laughs> one. Um, it's never there when you want it. Mm -hmm. Never. And so liquidity had driven up. It was at zero. Nobody could get access to credit. Big insurance companies, big banks, and so yeah. What are th what 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 were things trading? Well, they're trading close to zero. Mm -hmm. But is that where you want to put your books, and that's where you want to create panic? I mean, there could have been somebody that stepped in and said, well, "Look, guys, this is a massively successful country. We've got these these long term successful firms. We're going to pull back on marking everything to zero." And wait to see till the dust settles to find out how many underwriting losses were actually. Couldn't an have. investor have done that anyway? Who? What, what? What was keeping an investor from saying, accounting is theory? Uh, well, if you're running a public company, you've got to pay attention to the accounting rules. <laughs> if you're Dick Fold or you're uh, the guys running Citibank or Bank of America or or any of these these big things, I mean, no, they didn't have any. They didn't have a lot of options. Uh, I'm not doubting their lack of options, but an investor could say, okay, well, mark-to-market uh, -market says it's worth some, some very low number. We disagree. Um, I can't get away from the fact that Schwarzman's view was that the portfolio was a mess. So if you take away I mark- I wouldn't hang yourself too much. I wouldn't hang on that sentence too really? much. Really? Mm -hmm. I mean, that was one sentence. But mm -hmm. when when people characterize things as a mess, it doesn't mean 100% of it was a mess. It meant that 10% of it may be a mm -hmm. mess. There's something at the margin. But the, what the if whole there's thing, no I accounting? Think you said later on was there was only only there was only some damage there, not all damage. Mm -hmm. Well, because that was the other thing that I thought was interesting that he pointed out was that if you look at the housing investment, people to this day say, well, there's a bunch of sloppy loans made. Well, as he points out, 90, over 90% of them performed. These were generally good loans that over time they worked out. Um, this, this wasn't banks just throwing money at, at bad idea after bad idea, that they performed. Um, well, we had, we had a lot of bad underwriting. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, we were, had, you know, one of the great ironies of history is we've got Dodd-Frank um, which was supposed to uh, put in place to cure the ills that, that, uh, of the meltdown, where Bonnie, Barney Frank and Chris Dodd were two of the principal proponents to drop, have the banks drop their underwriting standards to put more, out, put more money out uh, to promote housing. Mm -hmm. And it got to the point where you could, buy, you could buy a house and they would lend you more than the purchase price to give you some extra money to fix it up. Mm -hmm. I mean, you remember those days. It's yeah. crazy. That's a, a reasonable banker doesn't do that unless they're being encouraged to do it. Mm -hmm. And then you got a lot of really bad actors uh, that I can't remember all the names. Countrywide Finance, and there were a lot. Of, there were a lot. Of, mm -hmm. A guy shows up at an investor conference, you know, with a deep tan and chest hair and you know, <laughs> jewelry, and you're thinking, why do we? It was pretty obvious that some of these guys were uh, crooks. Mm -hmm. Now, you talked, when we were emailing before this, you talked about the investment process really interested you in this, and, but we never got beyond that. I'm just, what's, what stood out? What, did you find yourself learning things? Did you find yourself fascinated? Uh, well, there's a lot of recognition. One of the things that he points out that I, I struggled with was that he was, I'm looking at his book, chairman, CEO, and co-founder of Blackstone, he was also the chief investment officer. Mm -hmm. And when you're deploying capital, and a lot of capital, the chief executive officer's role is, chief executive officer's role has many 
pieces, the chief investment officer has a different role. Mm-hmm. And as chief investment officer, you're supposed to be more or less gimlet-eyed about what the opportunity is, weighing risks, so on and so forth, and being really pretty rough about saying, no, this is a dumb idea, we shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. But when you're the chief executive officer, there's always the personnel part of it, where you get a guy that you really like, he comes to you with a deal, you say no, comes to you with another deal, you say no, third deal, no, fourth. Pretty soon you've, you've got an employee who's pretty dispirited. Mm-hmm. So as a chief executive officer, you sort of want to say, well, let's, let's, let's give him a chance to, to do something with this. And so you go for something because you're trying to support the person who's bringing you the deal. Mm-hmm. When you're in your heart of hearts, you may think it's not that great. Mm-hmm. And he recognized that. And, and, and I think I recognized it to a certain extent. I, I tried to fill a lot of put seats in my investment committee with some of the most negative people in the firm. Because mm-hmm. I tend to see things as half full. And I wanted people that would tell me that there's not only not half full, but the glass is empty. Mm-hmm. So we'd have that balance of opinions. It, it's always tough when you're trying to manage personalities while at the same time managing um, how, you alloc- how you allocate capital. Mm-hmm. How, what, what's your speculation along those lines? Do you think he's got people inside Blackstone willing, willing to tell him what he doesn't want to hear? I mean, that, that would I be... do. One of the things that struck me about Steve was that the people he recruited early on were very independent, tough-minded people out of Lehman Brothers, Kumo. Mm-hmm. And these were very bright people. They were tens, and they were people that could have you know, probably run their own company, but he recruited the men to help run divisions. Tom Hill was one of them, Steve Bouchard. Um, there are several other names that spring to mind. And so he brought in people that would tell him, good idea, bad idea. But the thing, it gets back to, I'm here with uh, John Tamney, we're, this Bill Walton show, and we're, we're talking about allocating capital and, and personalities involved with that and uh, how Steve Schwarzman did it at Lehman Brothers and now, or not at Lehman Brothers, but now at Blackstone, uh, Blackstone Group. And the thing that Steve, he says in the book that his strong suit was not numbers, not finance. Mm-hmm. That surprised me. I didn't know that. I mean, I, oh, right. what he saw as strong suit as being how to read people, how to take a lot of information out of a conversation with somebody. And this gets to your investment process question. He wanted people sitting in the room so he could hear the way they talked about the deal. And he, he, he developed a real knack for being able to read confidence and, or, or, or doubts or, or you know, considerations. And I think a lot of his ability to deploy capital successfully was his ability to get good people who did all the analytical work, and he would then leverage off of the way they presented it to him. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it, it gets back to that story I've mentioned about him sitting there in, on his, in the, in the, as a cook on a, on, a, on a tramp steamer reading Sigmund Freud. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's that about? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what, uh, you were in the business... What was Blackstone's reputation? Looking back. Oh, I think it's got a great reputation. How did you feel in 1990, 2000? Was it always the pinnacle? Um, Well, not then. I mean, you had Goldman, you had KKR had been in the buyout business. There are a lot of of very successful buyout firms, and at that point... uh, I think Blackstone was considered to be one of the top players, but it wasn't at the top of the heap. It took a while. Mm-hmm. But I think they were always considered highly, very smart, highly ethical, um, very aggressive, um, mm-hmm. able to make you know, smart deals. And, and in that world, that's, that's the, that's the uh, gold standard. Mm-hmm. Was, there, what, was there anything in the book that made you skeptical or that you felt didn't read right? Well, I think the the story of the way Lehman got sold to Shearson was a was a version of the mm-hmm. story. I mean, it, it didn't get into all the personalities and aspects of the things you saw in a book like Greed and Glory on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot more Sturm and Drung. It wasn't quite as clear cut as he made it in the book. So there, 
there are a lot of interesting, juicy details left out of it, but I don't think they were necessary for the book he was writing. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say skeptical, but I just thought, well, this is this is Steve's version, and I'm I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as Dealey did with Tropicana, sort of the same thing. I mean, there are a lot of annoyed people at Lehman Brothers when he did that deal because he was this junior guy, and he stepped over all sorts of people to put himself in a position to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it worked for him, mm-hmm. and so there's there's a little bit of the you know the blowback that he got from things he did. I don't think is in this, but I don't think it should be. It's not. They can write their book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, not as many people will buy it. I loved one of the things that I thought was so great in it was that he gave a lot of credit to Tony James, just as an example. Now Tony James was very high up at at Blackstone. I think he's just retired. He ran it. Yeah, he was the yeah, day-to-day. Yeah, the tip, tip, top. And yeah. he, um, one of the things that I underlined was that Tony James said, success breeds arrogance and complacency. And it's something that Howard Marks at Oak Tree Capital has similarly said, that the seeds of recession are actually uh, laid during the good times and the seeds of recovery are laid during the bad times. And I just, I, I liked that he gave such through such bouquets to some of the other people. Um, he, he must be a great hirer. Is Schwarzman? Yeah. I, oh, yeah. I think I mean, he is. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's not in the book are all the mistakes I'm sure he feels like uh-huh. he made, but why, but why get into it? I mean, he mm-hmm. talks about the people he hired who turned out to, to uh, create uh, big parts of his business. The thing that was interesting to me was when he had the first strategic plan for Blackstone, right at the beginning. He said, we're going to be in the advisory business, which is what Pete and mm-hmm. Steve had been doing forever. They were big deals, very, very, very respected. And we're going to be in the buyout business. This is this billion-dollar fraud that they... <laughs> they but I, they must have had a... I, I, think, I think probably the way Steve got that sold is, is we may not have the specific skills you're talking about, but we know how to find those people. Mm-hmm. We've worked with this person, that person. They're all going to be part of this, and he executed on that. But then there was this third part of the plan where, we, where he said advisory buyouts and other ventures. Mm-hmm. And so he proceeded very opportunistically, trying to find industries or, or, or related industries where he could get the right people with the right opportunity. And so he didn't shut that down. I mean, sometimes. And I'm, you know, I, I think you can be guilty of a business and let's just stick to what we know. Mm-hmm. Instead, he was looking for like hedge funds or like the real estate business, uh, um, residential housing, all these things that you, if you looked at Steve Schwarzman in 1985, you would have said, what do you know about that? Mm-hmm. But he, took, he had the intellectual curiosity and, and interest, and this sounds a bouquet, but I'm, I'm impressed. What's he have, 500,000 employees now? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Ten billion. Uh, I don't know how many. What, what the revenues are. Um, I think the way he built it, finding, as he calls them, tens, and also finding businesses that were adjacent to what they already knew, but would add something new to their knowledge base, mm-hmm. allowed them to make much better decisions. And a lot of people cut themselves off from those new opportunities. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think there's a lot to learn from that. What do you think drives him? I mean, you can't spend all this money. What do you think? He's still doing this. Why do you, what, what do you think drives him? Well, you remember the story DLJ wanted to hire him? Yeah. Out of, out of Yale. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's talking to the top partner. Yep. And the top partner says, Bill Donaldson or whichever one, Steve, you're amazing. We want to hire you. You're just out of Yale. $10,000. Steve said, well, I won't come to work for you for $10,000. What? You're kidding. He said, no. So I heard that somebody else from Yale got an offer for $10,000. I want mine to be $10,500. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he said, I won't take the job unless you do it. And so he left. And I guess three days later, they called him back and said, okay, we'll pay you mm-hmm. $10,500. I mean, who has that? Mm-hmm. So, so he wants to be... The very best, the very biggest numbers, and 
You can see that with MIT, with uh, I don't know what other places he's endowed, but he's dropped about 100, right. $150 million in all these prestigious universities. I think it really matters to him. Um, you know, in his 14 pages of acknowledgement, he's got the president of France and Mm -hmm. um, Kissinger and uh, yeah, Colin well Powell and all the five presidents and mm -hmm. you know it, it's a long list of people so he's very interested in being a player at the highest levels and you know I, I don't that has I have less appetite for that personally but I think if you want to know what drives him it's to mm -hmm. be the best among the best mm -hmm. yeah Ken Oletta in he didn't write this in Green Glory and Wall Street, but he wrote about New York City that he said it's the final test uh, for the talented. And I, yeah, I would have to believe that he wants to, his final test is to be the richest person in the most important city on earth. And I think he's close, if not there at this point, but just a remarkable man. Yeah, and I, you know, I have met Steve, I haven't seen Steve in years, but, you know, I, I would bet Steve could be pretty prickly at this point. I mean, it would be, I mean, you know. <laughs> You know, he's got like he's got like fifty three people that work for him personally, and mm. you know, it's it's a pretty he's a pretty uh, um, pretty major, but that's okay. I mean, that goes mm. with the territory. I don't you can't be that. him unless you're. I mean, you of all people who admire success for people who create biggest things like that, mm -hmm. their trappings go with it. I think mm -hmm. Steve likes the trappings. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, it's just why don't we get want to follow? I can use around. a few more trappings. Yeah, no, I I want to see it all. Well, John, how are we done on your questions? Are we? Uh, oh, we could ask so. Many I know more. we can keep going. This would be. I hope. I, I hope I asked the right ones because there's so many things that, that uh, there's just you've got to have so many opinions on this book, and so uh, this this was fun though. Well, I I, uh, I I found it really enjoyable, and it was a great summary of a lot of things that I think people ought to know about. And if you want to understand how private equity works, this would be a good place to start as well. Mm -hmm. So this has been, alas, the Bill Walton Show, and we're here with my favorite guest, Bill Walton. Uh, <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> no, my favorite, my favorite guest, John Tamney. John Tamney's been asking me some very hard questions about Steve Schwarzman and his book and the industry, and uh, I've got to get you on a plane to head off to, uh, to yeah, give somewhere. a speech. That's right. But, uh, well, you'll be back. We're going to be we'll talking be about this and yes. much to cover. So, Bill Walton Show, you can find us on all your, uh, the major platforms, YouTube, uh, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and uh, this is one of the many shows we'll be doing on finance and personalities, and hope you enjoyed it, and uh, uh, back to you next time, so thanks. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button, or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.